we are on the first Sunday series is, uh, is all about rejoicing. We're calling it the year of rejoicing and going over different passages that talks about rejoicing in the Lord. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite psalms, actually, Psalm 37, about delighting yourself in the Lord. I love this psalm, especially because um, I actually I use this psalm as the foundation when I'm sharing my own testimony because it's so perfectly uh, describes, it just sums up the whole process as I've experienced it of God weaning me from my natural inclinations to delight in the things of the world and instead delight in the Lord and all of that means. And so um, we're going to talk about that today. And would you now please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word as we look at Psalm 37 verses 1 through 11. Let's now listen intently together to the word of God. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the beauty of it. Lord, your word is so full of promises to us so full of wisdom and so full of promises and so perfectly surgically dissects our own fallen hearts and all of the foolish ideas that we have, Lord. And so we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would today, that you would expose some of our own, uh, some of the own wrong ideas that we have and, and some of the inclinations of our own fallen hearts and help us, to, help us to refocus on that one thing that truly brings delight and joy, and that is the Lord Jesus, your providence for us, your promises for us, uh, and everything that we are in Jesus, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you promise us that you will beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When we read this, psalm or other psalms like it, when you hear the word evildoers, I think our minds tend to immediately go to the farthest extreme and start to think of the, the, the supervillains of the world. People like Joseph Mengele, who escaped Nazi Germany and, and can, lived a complete and full life in South America without ever being caught, or Joseph Kony uh, in, in Africa ruining the lives of tens of thousands of children or Bashar al-Assad, people like that who just 
causing untold evil and suffering in the world. But I think this psalm really is talking more about a more ordinary level of people, the kind of people that you just run into every day, people that are really what, what the world would call just regular people who are appreciated, who are affluent, who are celebrated by our societies basically as good people, and yet they live, they're living life without any real thought about God, without considering really in any way what it means to honor God and to give Him thanks in the ways that God has, has described to us. Uh, and the thing is that they're doing, if we're honest, they're doing quite well. Thank you very much. And this, what the psalm is telling us, is, it's, it's saying that they're... there may be a couple of different reactions that we have to that. When I, when I was reading through this, it reminded, me of, um, it reminded me of one of the very first interviews that Rosaria Butterfield gave before her, her first book, uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, came out, an interview that she gave in Christianity Today. And she said, she said this, talking about her former life before, before Jesus. She said, she said, stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. As a professor of English and women's studies on track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, about justice, about compassion. I was fervent uh, for the worldviews of Freud and Hegel and Marx and Darwin, and I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality. Uh, my partner, I shared many vital interests, aid activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist church, to name a few. If you believe the ghost stories promulgated by the Republicans, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. Uh, the LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill and sacrifice and integrity. And at the end, she says, my life was happy and meaningful and full. And when I first read that, you know, the first thing I thought was, where's the God-shaped hole? Where's the God-shaped hole in all that? So much of our evangelism is so centered on this fact, this belief that we, th- we think that people who are outside of Christ have this vacuum in their hearts that there's, it's not filled. And if we just explain it to them that it's Jesus that's supposed to fit in there, they'll be like, oh my gosh, thank you for telling me that. But I read her story. There was nothing of that as far as she knew. If she would ask you and answer honestly, if you gave her a lie detector test and said, is your life full? Is your life fulfilling? Uh, is your life meaningful and happy? She would pass it flying colors. And this psalm, David, in this psalm, the Lord is telling us that there's a potential for us as Christians, as believers, to have two basic reactions to that reality. One is, maybe you get angry, which is fret. Fretting means to get upset, really to get all worked up about it and and it's really anger at god maybe you say to yourself especially if you're if you're suffering if you're if you're having a rough time in life especially especially if you're having a rough time in life because you're trying to be faithful 
and honor God with your life. Um, and then you hear the stories of people that are just prosperous and just clicking along in life and just winning at life with no consideration for God whatsoever. We can be very tempted to think, well, what's up with that? Where's God in that? Why is God, why is God blessing these people who could care less about him, but me in my life, I'm doing my best to honor God in all these ways and I'm struggling. I can't pay my bills. Um, all these stresses are on me. What is up with that? And we can get angry at God. But the other reaction, and this is the one that I tend to lean into a little more, is that we get envious. We can get envious. Uh, it sounds like they have it good. It sounds like they are getting to enjoy all the pleasures of the world. It sounds like they're not fighting against their own screaming bodies trying to, in the process of sanctification, trying to be honest with God. They don't even have that conflict. They're just going with it and enjoying what seems like and what's presented to us by our culture 24-7 as the good life. And they're loved and celebrated by culture while we are increasingly demonized. I want to be loved by the culture. I mean, I want to be loved and appreciated and celebrated and all of those things. I don't want to be demonized. And so my tendency is to be envious of them. It sounds like, here's what it sounds like. It sounds like they have it better than we do. And right there is where this psalm really kind of just pops out or exposes uh, the fallen nature of our own hearts. It, what it, say, it, it causes us to recognize, it causes me to recognize that when I say that, when I say to myself, I think they have it better than we do and therefore God's unfair, what's really telling me is that my heart thinks that being able to live in an unqualified or, or an unchecked sinful life is better than what I have. That being able to live in a, in a, in a sinful life without any concern for God that somehow what they have is better than what we have, and I'm angry and a little bit jealous about it. And what this psalm wants to tell us, what David wants to tell us, what the Holy Spirit through David wants to tell us is that that is not, not true. It's not true. And so it really asks us the question, is it better to delight in the world, or is it better to delight in the Lord? And that's the two questions we're going to ask. Today I'm going to ask the first question, is it better to delight in the world? Um, used to be you had to have some kind of talent in order to be famous. Nowadays, because of social media and reality shows and whatnot, there's a whole new category for fame uh, and, and having people being all in the business of your life. And that's basically to be Rich, beautiful, and train wreck. And if you have those three things together, you can pretty much be famous and everyone can know all about your business. What that, how that's helpful for us is that it really, what it should do is give us a window into the life that we, so, we think is so happy and wonderful. It gives us a real a window into uh, the misery that we think we want. And in seeing all of that, you would think you would think that we would see that and it would be all the evidence that we would need to say, to, to say no. I don't want that. That's not happy. That's not... Being 
affluent, being wealthy, being famous, being rich, being desired, being whatever, uh, is not what it's all cracked up to be and that we would not want it anymore. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't do that for us. As much as we parade train wreck celebrities in front of the culture, the more people want to read about them. Part of it leaves because we're just fascinated at what's going to happen next, but partly because we want that. Uh, I remember the first time in my former life, I used to be a musician, I remember the first time I ever got to hang out with a real live bona fide rock star. Uh, and I was super excited about it. And when I, the first thing I realized was that this guy was absolutely miserable. Uh, and that blew my mind. But at the same time of his being miserable, he was admired and respected, and I wanted that so bad. I never put together uh, the fact that it didn't ever even occur to me that I might get those things and be just as miserable as he was. There was this weird mental blank spot in my mind that didn't allow me to make that connection. Why? Well, we were at our men's group last night um, studying uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And really, what we're talking about here is anytime we remove God from the pole position of our lives and the center of our lives, it automatically gets replaced with something else of ultimate value. And in this study that we had last night, Keller said two astonishing things about idols and what they do. And it's two scary things. First is, is that they redefine reality according to themselves. In other words, what that means is the idol will redefine reality in terms of itself. In term, it will redefine what is ultimate in our minds so that success, failure, happiness all depends on achieving that goal and then anything that gets in the way of it, family, friendships, relationships, anything, even good things, anything that gets in the way of achieving that goal becomes bad and it, it creates the environment, it creates the ability for us to call evil good and good evil. And then the second thing it does is, is it magnifies the ordinary disappointments and failures of life into life-shattering experiences. It's not just disappointment anymore if you don't achieve the goal. If the goal represents the ultimate thing that we must have, uh, if my success, if my happiness, if everything that I've set all my hopes on in life is depending on achieving this goal, if I don't make it, or if I'm not making it fast enough, it's not just disappointing, it's absolutely devastating. It's devastating. What I found out later in life and what that rock star, the first rock star that I got to hang out with knew was that the big problem is it's never enough. You can't avoid the disappointment. You can't avoid the devastation because it's never, ever enough, whatever it is that you get. Whatever you replace God with will never, ever be enough. He was, I think, disappointed and miserable because he was, he was headlining a national tour of clubs, but he wanted to be headlining arenas. And then later... 
he ended up headlining arenas. And then after that, I think you would probably say he was disappointed because he wasn't headlining stadiums. And then after that, they ended up headlining stadiums. And then after that, he committed suicide. And I think the reason was probably because he got to the very end of his conceptual framework of what could possibly make him happy. In other words, he ran, he ran out of next things to do. And that's a scary place to be. What do you do when you get to the point where you've gotten everything that you think you must have to be happy and it didn't work? And you got no next place to go. He couldn't think of anything else to shoot for. And in the midst of all of his wild popularity and success, he felt like an absolute failure. And so delighting in the world, it didn't work. But you might say, maybe you say, what about, okay, so that's, okay, that's that guy. What about, what about the super successful people that are super happy? What about the people who don't end up killing themselves? There's a lot of those, aren't there? I mean, what about, I mean, what about Oprah Winfrey? She seems so joyful. What about Tom Hanks, man? Everybody loves Tom Hanks. And when, you keep ta- when Tom Hanks accepts an award and you listen to him, you're like, man, that is the nicest guy in the whole world. And he probably is. Very nice, very good man. So what about that? What about people that seem to go on, they live their entire lives prospering in their way, and then they die, and nothing bad ever seems to happen? Well, I think, first of all, we would say the outward appearances are really bad indicators or inward realities, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of these same disappointments were working in their lives. But let's say that that's not true. Let's say that they actually are super successful and fulfilled until the moment of death. And then what happens? The Bible says that then in an instant, in an instant they realize that even all the goodness that they had and experienced was God's kindness to them, was God's common grace to them, drawing them into repentance and instead they took it and ran with it for personal glory. All the masks are off, all the secret desires of the heart are exposed, all the sin is exposed. Uh, and they come to understand in just a second, in a moment, that they've traded in an eternity of joy for 70 or 80 years of mildly entertaining but ultimately disappointing human achievement. That's delighting in the world at its best. And so should our response to that be anger Or should our response to that be envy? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. Really, our response to that should be to be overwhelmed with sadness and that should drive us to compassion and it should fuel us in our evangelism and wanting to make the gospel known. So, first question, is it better to delight in the world? No, it's not better to delight in the world. It's better to delight in the Lord. Second part, better to delight in the Lord. 
what is that? What is that? So, I, you know, I think when the first time I read this, I was like, what is that? And I thought about it. What does that even mean to delight in the Lord? Can't see him. Uh, I mean, I can, read, I can read the word. I can hear him speak to me. I'm intellectually, I know these things. I can receive comfort from the Bible. But to really, to delight in the Lord, what does that mean? And honestly, in my early Christian life, when I read this passage, passages like it, I would read that and I would think, that is a trick. Because I knew what the desires of my heart were, and I had knew for a fact that God had no intention of giving them to me. Uh, and so, you know, I thought, what does that possibly, what could that possibly mean? What does it mean to delight in the Lord? And in what way is he going to give me the desires of my heart? Totally confusing. And now I think what it means is this, and it, it means two things for sure. It means first, it means delighting in God's providence, delighting in God's providence and provision for us, which means this, bottom line means delighting in what God wants for you, no matter what that is. Delighting in what God wants for you, even if that means you are not going to get what you think you want. Our delight, delight in God is marred, I think, by how hard we cling to the idols that we cling to in the, the cultural environment of in all the media blasts that we get 24-7 that says you'll be happy if you have this, you'll be secure if you have this, you will be delighting if you have this. There was this, this picture of a car commercial, Mercedes-Benz car commercial I saw the other day. It didn't really even say anything about the car. It just had, it was like 30 seconds of the, the man driving in the car to his estate in the Hamptons and it focused just on his face. And the man just had this, this look of complete satisfaction on his face as he drove this car. I wonder how they, they found, I mean, how they did those actors, how they like cast that to find a guy who could just portray with his face perfect satisfaction for 30 seconds. But he managed, he managed to do it. All those things that are fighting against us that we, that's our joy, our delight in God is hampered, it's marred to the exact extent that we grab onto the things that we think we have to have in opposition to the things that God has for us. I mean, honestly, this is how it goes. We say, okay, I trust you, God. Here, God, and using a driving analogy again, we say, God, here's the wheel, and God starts driving. And then we say, God, take a left here, left, 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 and God doesn't do it. And then we grab the wheel, crank it to the left, we go down that street, and there's no delight. And so what, this, what Psalm says, what David says here is there's three things we do. We, we, first is we commit our way. You commit your way to the Lord, which means that's that, that unqualified an unreserved yes that you say to God. You write a blank check and you say, God, whatever you want for me, do it. <laughs> Man, isn't that tough? Does that, is anybody here like kind of cringing right now? <laughs> That's a scary thing. And what is that like flushes out like how convinced we are 
that we know what we have to have to be happy. And, and, and on our idea, really, of sanctification, our idea of the Christian life, is God helping us achieve that thing. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying, up front, you figure, figure out what it is. What's that big fear you have? What do you, th- what are you terrified God's going to do with you? I know what it used to be for me. I was terrified. I knew God was going to send me to some crazy foreign country to do mission work. He's going to send me to Africa to work in an in AIDS hospice or something. I was absolutely convinced that he was going to ruin my life. And so whenever changes started, whenever that, you know, things started to happen, I would fight against it. But committing your way to the Lord means being getting a okay up front and saying, whatever you want, God, do it. And then the second thing is to trust him. Second thing is to trust in him, which means to trust first in his goodness, to know that he's good, that he has our best interest at heart. It means to trust in his wisdom, to say to ourselves, and I know this is hard, God, you are smarter than me. You can see the future, I can't. You know the cause and effect relationships between everything in the universe, I don't. And to trust God and his wisdom and his knowledge and his power to bring about what is good for you. Uh, and, then, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then to trust him and as things fall out, as things don't go the way you think they should, when God turns right, when you want to turn left, to trust him in the little things in life as you go down the road. And then the third thing is to wait patiently. To wait patiently on the Lord because it's not going to happen overnight. What God's going to do with you is, is what God's going to do with us is not going to happen overnight. And so the last part is we wait. We wait. But the second thing the second thing it means is that we delight in God's promises. And he makes two promises in here. The first is he promises, the first promise is this in verse five. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. That could really be translated, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and then he will act. It's God's promise to us God's promised to us that he will act on our behalf to bring us into the delight that he has for us when we commit, trust, and wait. Now, look, like I said before, I first saw this verse, early Christian life, and I was like, there's no way God's going to give me the desires of my heart because I know what they are and I know he has no intention of fulfilling those things. I knew what I wanted, what I had to be okay what I needed to be okay. My, you know, my earlier life, prior to being a Christian, it was to live on a tour bus, live out of hotel rooms, to be a famous rock musician. Later in life, it became even you know, worse things. Um, and what God ended up giving me instead of that was an ordinary life, a beautiful Christian wife, three kids, to be a pastor of a little church downtown. I mean, compared to what I wanted, what I thought the desires of my heart were at the beginning of my, you know, was 
It was a total and complete opposite of what I wanted. And yet, in all these things that I trusted in in my old life, every one of them failed me. Every one of them, at the end of the day, was painful. But what God has given me is delightful. I wouldn't trade anything for, I wouldn't trade it for a million bucks. That word delight, it really, it's exquisite delight is the way one of the commentaries describes it. It's exquisite delight. It's actually a a, a loan word that comes out from a word that's delighting in the strongest emotions of love. It's like a love story, a romance story between yourself and God where God shapes you, reshapes you. Really what it means is, for me and for a lot of us, what it means is that what has to happen is first God has to show us what the true desires of our heart are and then he comes through in spades and fulfills them. I mean, I thought my desires of my heart was I had to be famous, had to be rich, had to be uh, acknowledged by people, had to be respected, had to be all these things. But really what I was using, I was using sin as a tool to get those things and it never worked out. It never worked out. But what God showed me was that in this simple life that he gave me, that all of those things, uh, security and, and peace and respect and purpose and fulfillment were all like part and parcel and an outflowing of the service that he gave me. And so he had to show me first what my real desires were And then he came through and fulfilled them. The second promise, the second promise is is really the picture that he gives in this analogy of, of light. Listen to what it says. He says, it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. I'm convinced that's a picture God is giving us of of the sun and, and sunrise of the very first light cracking at dawn and the beginning of our life and our process of, of living with God the very first light of dawn God begins to bring our righteousness out and the promise is just as the sun is guaranteed to come over the horizon and continue to raise up until it's at full noon and the whole world is bathed in light, the light of righteousness, it's God's promise that that's going to happen with us too. As the first light breaks in our lives in the beginning of our Christian walk, he continues to grow us in righteousness, continues to grow our justice until eventually it reaches that full light of noonday. And the best part is, the part that makes this completely different from delighting in the world is that it doesn't stop at death. That's really, death really is the brightness of noonday. Death is really when we become ethically righteous, when we become perfect, when we become glorified, when God glorifies us in the new realms. And so really when we say we're trusting in God, when we're trusting in the Lord, 
and waiting for him. We're not just waiting for things and blessings in this life, but ultimately what we're waiting for is what Jesus purchased for us. What Jesus purchased for us at the cross, which is not just a better life in this world, but a whole, complete new world in which we and our righteousness will shine like the noonday sun along with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And that's worth waiting for. Jesus, he, Jesus, I think, quotes this psalm twice to back that up. Unlike delighting in the world, the process doesn't end in this life. It means Jesus quotes the parable or quotes the psalm twice. In Matthew 5, he said, or in, in the psalm in verse 9 here, it says, in this, uh, it says that the meek will inherit the land. But in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, the meek will inherit, the, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. You know, and secondly, in 37, it says in verse 10, it says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you will carefully look at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I think Jesus had that at least in mind in John 16, 16, when he told the disciples in this cryptic way, he said, in a little while, you will see me no longer. And then again, in a little while, you will see me. And then he clarifies that a little later by saying what he means is that now you have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He's saying, look, what he's saying is this. He's saying in a little while. In the same way that he's saying in a little while, the wicked will be no more. They are like the flower of the field. They will come, they will fade away. That picture of like us looking for them and looking at his place and they'll no longer be there is this picture of us like being surprised by that. Just like they were just here, but now they're gone. In the very same way that that's going to happen so fast, Jesus is saying in just a little while, the noonday sun will be all the way up for us. That the new heavens and the new earth will be here. That that will be our reality. It seems so long for us, honestly. When I think about, seriously, I think about new heavens and new earth, and I'm like, okay, someday. But I've got to wake up Monday morning and face, face the music. I've got all these anxieties in my life. I've got all these media outlets trying to tell me that if I buy this new car, that I'm going to be okay. And it seems like it's going to go on forever. But what, what Jesus is telling us is from his perspective, being able to see all things, he wants us to know, look, it's just a little while. It's not forever. I'm not going to languish here forever and ever under this pressure and under the strain. In just a little while, he is going to make our righteousness and our justice like the noonday sun, brilliant and shining in glory. And we will never, ever have to worry about the strains and pressures of this world again. In a little while, 
we will have endless joy. And that can start now as we commit our way to the Lord, as we trust in Him, and as we wait and patiently see what He'll do with us. And I don't know what that's going to be, but I do know that it's going to be beautiful. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are short-sighted people. We tend to be and forget so quickly your promises, Lord, and the truth of who we are and who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to not be taken in by all the lies of the world that try to get us to believe in something other than you, that get us to try to delight in some other thing. Pray that you would help us, Lord, to let go with all of our preconceived ideas of what we must have in order to be happy and secure and to fully trust you, fully trust you, Lord, to go all in with your plan for us, with your will for us, and that you would help us then, Lord, to wait patiently and to act in integrity, to cultivate virtue, and to seek to honor you in all of our ways, Lord, as we patiently wait to see what you will do with us, Lord, knowing that it will be better, knowing that it's going to be beautiful, and knowing that ultimately our hope is in a completely new world that you have promised us, Lord. Help us to hope in that, and help us to be so excited about it that we just can't help ourselves but telling other people, about it, Lord. Help us to be truly missionaries to San Diego. Help us to pray, uh, present this gospel message, Lord, as far as you would allow us to. And uh, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.